All right, well, you can open up to Romans chapter 16. We're getting there. We're just not there yet, so we're slowly getting there. I do pray that you all uh, really set aside that time in September for our Equip conference. Uh, the speakers are going to be good. We're having uh, Mark Spence from Living Waters, uh, who is uh, affiliated with uh, uh, Ray Comfort. I invited Ray Comfort, but he doesn't speak that much anymore, so they gave me the, the, the president of his, his organization. He's a wonderful uh, guy that really speaks to the heart of the gospel, and he's going to be talking on what is the gospel. And so that's going to be a, a, neat, a neat thing. And then also Andrew Rappaport from Striving for Eternity Ministries. He'll be here. And uh, the, whole, the whole theme of the conference is what do we believe? And so we really want to gather uh, and equip the church. Uh, we're also having a Dr. Anthony, who's a dentist, come, and he does a wonderful presentation on creationism. And uh, so we're looking forward to our time in September. It's the second weekend in September, the 14th, 15th, and then Andrew will be speaking on the 16th. But the conference is the 14th and 15th. If you want to get involved with that, um, help with that, give toward that. We have three speakers, so uh, we'll probably blow the budget out. Sorry, Bob, but uh, we're, we're trying to do the best here we can. So we want to make sure that uh, if you're interested in giving toward that, you can do that. Also, the radio program on Sunday afternoon at 3.30, you can continue to pray and support that in your prayers and your giving as well. Uh, we're looking forward to God doing a work through that. But let's look at our text this morning. And uh, last week, we, we looked at the first part of verse 20. And so I'll read verse 20 for us, and we'll finish off the second part of verse 20 today. Romans chapter 16 says, verse 20, Paul writes, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And we discussed that all last week. And then today we want to look at the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And you say, that's it? That's it. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot here that we want to look at. And so far in this little series, we've been doing sub-series in the book of Romans on Paul's heart entrusted with the gospel. We've looked at Paul's unifying heart. We've looked at Paul's satisfied heart, his bold heart, his ministering heart, his glorifying heart, his missionary heart, planning heart, praying heart, giving heart, loving heart, protective heart. And now we want to look at Paul's gracious heart. You know, grace is one of those words. Ken did a study, uh, a sermon uh, several years ago probably, on grace, on God's amazing grace. You can look it up on the internet. It's a great, great message. But we want to talk about the subject of God's grace this morning. And, you know, when, when, when we love each other in Christ, we... We love each other because we know that we've been touched by the grace of God. We've been touched by the love of God. And even here toward the end of this book, Paul begins to mention certain individuals, certain names that he has just a a love for, an affinity, just to reach out and to, to make sure that they know that they're appreciated. And that comes because he was touched by the heart of God, who is a gracious God. And so Paul normally ends his letters with benedictions. You can look at all of his letters, and they're usually some form of benedictions. And in Romans, we saw at the end of chapter, I think it was chapter 11, it seems like he begins to uh, 
end the book. But then he comes back and he does another benediction and another benediction. It's like he's got so much in there, he can't end. And that's how I feel when we're trying to finish this book. It just seems like every week there's some new stuff that I discover. Um, But he writes at the end of chapter 11, one of his benedictions, he says, Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You know, it's, it's wonderful to see how Paul ends his books. And it's a fun study to go through and to look at his different books and see how he ends in these different doxologies. And he has another doxology that we'll look at in the coming uh, weeks. But it's a perfect way to end these, these books. And he has unpacked for us through the book of Romans all this theology that we've learned over the years as we've been studying through the book. And, uh, you know, the one thing that we have to understand, he falls here on the central theme of the Christian message, of the Christian gospel. The central theme of the Christian gospel is the grace of God. If it was not for the grace of God, beloved, we wouldn't have a gospel, We would be under the judgment of God. But because God is a gracious God, uh, you know, it's a fun study to go through the Bible and to look up the word, if you have a computer, look up the word grace. And there's all kinds of grace. And today I just want to take a short time to look at some of these um, descriptions of God's grace. You know, afterwards over in the fellowship hall we have some a lunch together, some hot dogs and things that we're going to be having today. So we invite you over there. If you're visiting with us, it's a good time to get to know, meet each other a little bit, talk about the message if you want to, um, eat some great food. And we appreciate the ladies that put that all together for us each week. But it's such an incredible thing to be able, as the body of Christ, to gather together. And the only reason that's possible is because of the grace of God. That's the most wonderful theme in all of the Word of God is His grace, God's grace. Of all the songs that have been written, the one that has been recorded most, Ken shared this in his message, was different artists doing amazing grace. And when we sing it anymore, I mean, you know, we sing it a lot, but when we sing it, I think sometimes we forget what those words really say. It's written by John Newton, former slave trader turned preacher. And when you stop and you think of some of the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. When you hear the word grace, beloved, it should be a sweet sound to your ears. And here's why. That saved a wretch like me. You know, some of our newer churches today, they change that word in their hymn and they say, someone like me, because they think, wretch, that's a horrible word. That's what we are. (laughs) That's what we were before Christ saved us. That's what, you know, we're a a wretch. We're, We're someone who needs a Savior. It goes on, it says, I once was lost, but now am found. Have you ever been lost I remember being little and being lost one time, and it's not, a, it's not a fun experience. You know, at first you're just a little nervous, but then sheer terror strikes your heart when you realize you're really lost. 
You don't know where to go. You don't know which one, south, north, east, west. You're totally lost. I was lost in the woods one time, and there was nobody with me, and I, I literally got lost for hours. And it's, it's a scary feeling. But I love, it says, but now I'm found. Now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Can you imagine being blind to all the beauty that God's creation unfolds for us every day? I was driving around the Bay Area the other day and saw the Golden Gate Bridge. And I saw the skyline of San Francisco. Then I looked over and I saw the redwoods. Of, I mean, it's just amazing. We live in an amazing place here. And it's filled with God's creative beauty. It's also filled with a lot of sin. But that's why God has us here, right? To be light in darkness, to be the salt that he calls us to be. But grace really is amazing. It's probably the most amazing thing in the universe. And so when you stop and you look at that word throughout the scriptures, um, there's a lot of different varieties of grace that are uh, described. A fun thing to do is to take a hymnal and go in the back and look under subjects and you can find grace as a subject. In one of the hymnals it said this. Under the heading of grace it says there's converting grace, there's the covenant of grace, there's efficacious grace, there's the fullness of grace, there's magnified grace, refreshing grace, regenerating grace, sanctifying grace, saving grace, and sovereign grace. All under that one subject. It also combined with other things, such as the love and grace of God, the love and grace of Christ, the love and grace of the Holy Spirit, salvation by grace. So there's all these descriptive phrases that are used, like abounding grace, abundant grace, amazing grace, boundless grace, fountain of grace, the God of grace, Indelible grace, marvelous grace, matchless grace, overflowing grace, pardoning grace, plenteous grace, unfailing grace, unmeasurable grace, wonderful grace, wondrous grace, the word of grace, grace all-sufficient, and grace alone. There's a wonderful hymn written by Samuel Davies, who used to be the former president of Princeton University, which used to be a Christian university, as many of those great schools once were. He wrote this hymn, and here's what the hymn says. Great God of wonders, all thy ways are worthy of thyself divine. And the bright glories of thy grace among thine other wonders shine. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? Can't you say praise the Lord this morning that you know the God of grace? That he has allowed you the privilege of knowing him personally. Having a copy of his message to you, the Bible. That you can study any time, day or night. It's an amazing thing. Well, today I want to look at a couple elements of God's grace. Theologians speak of such things as common grace, electing grace, irresistible grace, persevering grace, pursuing grace, saving grace. But let's start with the aspects of common grace. What do we mean by common grace? Common grace basically describes the grace of God that's made available to all persons, regardless of their relationship to Christ. See, even unbelievers 
feel the grace of God. That's how great it is. They may not recognize it as such, but every time they take a breath of the air that they breathe, that's God's common grace. Every time a raindrop falls from the sky to water their garden, that's God's common grace. I mentioned a couple weeks ago the book When Bad Things Happen to Good People by the New York rabbi Harold Kirshner. At the end of his book, and his theology is all wrong, but at the end of his book, what his recommendation for us to do was that, you know what, we really need to find it in our hearts to forgive God. And just like him, he says, we need to just try to get on with life and do the best we can. Now, that's heresy. We don't need to forgive God. What would we forgive God for? He's never done anything wrong. See, and and when you stop and you think, well, his whole title, when bad things happen to good people, the whole premise is wrong. See, the reason we need the grace of God is what? We need the grace of God because there are no good people. We're all tainted by sin. The Bible says, for all have fall short of the glory of God. We've all gone our own way. We've sinned. We've done something that has betrayed someone's trust, God's trust. We've we've done something that's unseeming in his eyes. Sin basically means to miss the mark. We miss the bullseye. Not only that, we miss the whole target, if we were honest with ourselves. There's not a person in this room today that can say, well, I'm not a sinner. I'm perfect. No, you're not. We're all tainted by sin. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need the grace of God to touch our hearts. The grace of God is God's willingness on no cost to us, really, to give us his favor. The grace of God is God's unmerited favor. It's something we can't earn. We can't do something for it. You know, I remember in the church I grew up in, it was an altar boy and the whole nine yards, and it seems like, you know, you just could never get ahead spiritually. Because it's like no matter how much you did, there was always something else to do. And they used that kind of mentality to keep you under their thumb. So when you went to the confessional and you told the priest your, your sins, the priest would say, well, go say five Hail Marys and, and three Our Fathers and you're good. And I always wondered, why do I have to say five? Why can't I say one? Is God deaf? I mean, can he hear what I'm saying at the first time? See, and, and that was the, a mode of, of earning God's grace. You'd say the rosary, or you'd say all these prayers over and over and over again. And you'd come to communion, and you'd come to confession, and you'd go to church. And boy, if you missed a Sunday, wow, you better look out. Because God is angry with you. That is not the grace of God, beloved. That is a religion of works. That is a religion that says, you know what? God's love toward me is based on what I do. Not on what was done for me by Christ. And so when you stop and you think of God's common grace, it's a grace that touches all. In Luke chapter 13, you don't need to turn there. You can if you want. But I just want to highlight this because it's, it's a picture of this kind of grace. 
Um, a lot of times, you know, when we, when we hear of God's common grace, it says in Luke chapter 13, verse 2, the people were accustomed to kind of asking questions of, of Christ. And in this case here, it seemed like some of the, the victims of this tower that collapsed was their vic- innocent victims. They're innocent. And so they were asking Christ, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Or who's 18 who died when the Tower of Shalom fell on them? Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Jesus says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you all perish too. See, this is, this is an example of, you know what, there is no one good. Sometimes we ask the question, well, why did that person die and not that person? I don't know. I mean, my theology about death is pretty simple. We all die, and we all die on time. We're not going to die a second before God's days for us are over. And with that, you can hopefully take some hope. You can realize, I don't have to sit around and worry about this. So Jesus was saying when he asked these questions, why do bad things happen to good people here? Uh, The right question is to say, why do good things happen to bad people? Because we're all bad people. And it's because of God's grace that we start down that pathway. You know, God in his grace, he doesn't allow the wicked not to receive rain, but the, the righteous receive rain. The wicked don't have to go around with an oxygen mask because God shut off the oxygen to them. No. As a matter of fact, sometimes it seems almost in this world that a lot of the unrighteous and wicked activity is, is elevated. And we think, what's up with that? Have you ever run into somebody that's just living an unrighteous life? And I've witnessed to people like that and told them about the love of God. And they say, why would I need that? I have more money than I can ever even spend. I mean, they think that, that it's, that's, that's where their, their affections lie. And when you begin to tell them things like, you know what, that's all going to burn up. They're, you're going to stand before a holy God one day. They don't want to hear that. That rails against their own personal theology. See, they've created a God in their own mind that says, you know what, I'm going to try to do the best I can with, with what I have here, and hopefully it'll all work out in the end. That's a scary way to approach eternity. But why did God allow such wicked wretches like ourselves even this morning to get out of bed and to come here? Why does he allow that? The answer is his grace. God is gracious. He's gracious even to sinners. And we need to emulate that. You know, I think the problem with our churches today is, and I mentioned this last Tuesday, is we view the people outside these four walls as the enemy. Oh, the evil world, keep them away. And so we put up our four walls and we gather together and huddle together as Christians and then we go out into a world that's tainted with sin and is lost and on its way to hell, but we feel, you know what, as long as we don't have any contact with those people, we'll be okay. We just got to make it to next Sunday where we can gather again. And huddle together. That's not what Jesus told us to do. That's not what he told the New Testament church to do. 
He said, you know what? You come together for the purpose of what? For equipping, for building yourself up. That's why we teach the Bible. We teach from the scriptures. I'm not up here just, you know, sharing five, five ways to have a happy family or something. We want to expound the scriptures because we know that in the scriptures are the words of life. These are God's words. And so God's grace is available to all of us. So he has common grace. But then we also have saving grace. Saving grace. Now, common grace doesn't save anybody. It doesn't save a soul. Saving grace is where salvation happens. Um, The special grace of God operated by the preaching and the teaching of the word of God, that's what saves the heart. That's what will communicate God's truth. And see, I always tell people, if you're going to witness to somebody and you had, you know, three minutes to tell them something, just think. Say you're on a plane and the plane's going down and you had three minutes to tell somebody about Christ. What would you actually tell them? Would you just start, well, you know, I was born in Pennsylvania and I, you know, I, no. You would want to get them to the gospel as quick as possible so that they could understand the glorious truth. And I bet you, more than not, you would probably find yourself quoting scripture to them. You would quote scripture to them. Why? Because you know that that's where the message of grace lies. And so when we move into this area of biblical truth, we need to speak about sovereign grace, redeeming grace, and efficacious grace. Those are all big words, I know. But we want to look at this. Now, if you turn over to Ephesians, and this all comes out of this one closing here by Paul, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I was just going to pass over that, and I thought, you know what? Maybe some people need to understand what this word grace really means. So turn over to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Like Romans, Ephesians deals with, it's, it's kind of a fun book to read because the first three chapters deal with pure doctrine. That's all it is. It's just doctrine. One doctrine after the other. And then when you get to chapter 4, Paul kind of takes a break and he says, you know what? I've taught you all this doctrine. Now I'm going to show you how to put it to work. I'm going to apply it. So it's a great book to grasp a good understanding of. But when we speak of God's sovereign grace, Ephesians stresses the sovereignty of God in salvation so much over and over and over again. And it tells us why we are lifted out of sin's depravity and God's curse, God's wrath, to the heights of eternal joy and communion with God, by God's grace. Now look at verse 3 to 14. He says here, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you know that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are blessed with, it doesn't say some, <laughs> it doesn't say most, What does it say? It says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We are thoroughly equipped as Christians to live this life that God has called us to. And it breaks my heart when I see Christians struggling in their Christian walk because they don't understand who they are in Christ. 
They don't understand what's available to them in Christ. So what are they doing? They're, they're off here shopping, you know, secular means to, to meet their needs. They're going to secular counselors. They're doing all this therapy. They're doing all these different things, trying to figure out how to deal with a problem. And God says, look, I have thoroughly equipped you in Christ. He is more than able to meet your needs. So he continues here. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, blameless before him, in love he predestined us for the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his, there it is, glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have the redemption through the blood, through his blood, and the forgiveness of our trespasses according there it is again, to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Well, first of all, we want to look at God's electing grace. This is in verses four to six here. There's so much here to unpack. But in verses four to six, it talks about God's electing grace. You know, the only reason we choose God is because he chose us. Do you understand that? That's the only reason. And that choosing on God's behalf, it says in verse 4, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, what? Before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. We weren't around before God chose us. I mean, stop and think about it. God transcends time. There's no yesterday, there's no today, there's no tomorrow. He transcends time. That's why the Bible says, you know, one, one, one day is, is a thousand, whatever. It, it doesn't matter with God. God is above time. Now, we can't comprehend this, but that's the truth. And so it says, even before we were here, God chose us for salvation. And there's a lot to be had here in these verses, such as holiness Adoption, the love of the Father for the Son. But the chief thought of verses 4 to 6 is the thought of election. Now, electing grace can be explained in a lot of different ways. As predestination, which is another word for election, as being in accordance with his pleasure and his will, which explains election as being by God's will only, By grace, which is mentioned here over and over. And then he says, 
Finally, which he has freely given. He has freely given. These are all expressions of God's grace, his electing grace, the grace that saved you and I. That's why we should be thankful to God for his grace. Thankful to God that, you know what, we may think that, well, we finally figured this spiritually thing out, spiritual thing out and finally came to the end of ourselves, and then so we finally came to Christ. The only reason you came to the end of yourself is because God is working. God is working. See, that's why it's never, never a cause for the Christian to give up on somebody. You know, I know some of you have some relatives that you've been praying for who knows how long. And you're just shaking your head going, man, I don't think this is going to happen. I don't think they're going to get saved. It just doesn't seem like God's doing. You don't know what God's doing. You have the slightest idea. And God could strike that person's heart tomorrow and they could come to you and say, hey, you know what? You know this religious thing you've been doing for years? It totally makes sense now and I want to get saved. And you're going, wait a minute, wait, 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 what? What are you saying? See, and then, you know, we, we, we want to disbelieve their newfound faith because we can't believe that God would save such a person as them. Well, guess what? He saved you. He saved me. We're all there. We're all tainted by sin. And unless God graciously opened up our eyes by his electing grace, we would still be lost in our sin. They teach us these verses here in Ephesians 4 to 6, teach us that the blessings of salvation come to some people because God had determined before the creation of the world to give them to those people. Now you can look at that in a positive way and say, wow, praise God I am one of those people. (laughs) Praise God that his grace touched me. Or you could sit back, cross your arms and go, yeah, but why didn't that guy get saved? How, how dare God not save my neighbor, but he saved me? I don't think you want to go down that road. <laughs> That's not fair. If you want the fairness of God, beloved, if you want the justice of God, guess where you end up? You end up in hell. You end up in a place that you, where you are eternally separated from the God of grace. I don't think you want to end up there. See, we want fairness until we realize what true fairness really is. And then we step back and go, whoa, praise God for his grace. Because you know what? If it wasn't for God's grace, there's no way any of us would be standing or sitting here today. If it wasn't for God's grace, we would have no interest in this book. We would have no interest in fellowshipping with one another. We would be pursuing full throttle the things of this world. All for naught. But it's because of God's electing grace that he touched our hearts. Secondly, we see God's redeeming grace in these verses, in verses 7 to 10. See, when God elects men, women to salvation, it's not the only thing that God has done as an expression of his grace. If you look at verses 7 to 10, look at these verses with me. It speaks of the Trinity. It tells us what the Trinity's role was in our salvation. Look at what it says. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of what? His grace. His grace. 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the power of the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. See, it's God the Father who planned our salvation. It's God the Son who what? He accomplished our salvation by coming down to this earth, being born as a human being, living a perfect life. He never sinned, not even once. If he did, he wouldn't be God. So he lived a perfect human life while here on earth 30-some years, and then he gave that life up willingly. He went to a place called the Cross of Calvary, and he willingly gave up his life. They didn't take it. They didn't murder Jesus. He willingly gave up his life, the Bible tells us. And as a result of that, what happened? God was satisfied with that sacrifice. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission for sin. There's no way to redeem sin. Now you say, well, why is that? I don't know. That's the way God set it up. And he's God and we're not. So we dare not go to God and say, you know, I don't, I don't really think this is nice that in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned, you know, they closed themselves with some leaves and stuff. But then you came along and apparently you killed an animal, God. How dare you? And you actually clothed them with the skin of an animal. Why? Because a sacrifice was needed. Now, you know, if you love animals today, it's not about that. God loves animals. He's the one that created them. But see, we don't want to get to the point where animals are more precious than human beings. And unfortunately, that's where we live today. You know, if you go out on the sidewalk and get caught on camera kicking a dog, yeah, you'll go to jail. But you know what? You can go down here on El Camino and walk into Planned Parenthood and kill your unborn baby and nobody says a word. We live in a sick society. But it's God who planned this salvation. It's God the Son who accomplished it. And then at the end here in verse 10, it even tells us that it's the Holy Spirit, okay, who applies it to God's people. You know, what unites us in Christ. It's the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God. Look at down verse uh, uh, 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with what? The promised Holy Spirit. And he's the guarantee of our inheritance. He's the down payment of what is to come. Redemption is mainly associated with Christ because he's the one who accomplished it. He's called our what? Our Redeemer. He's the one who paid the price. And that's what it says there in verses 7 to 8. In him we have the forgiveness of sin. And it's the picture of someone being in the slave market and being up on the, the auction block. And Christ comes along and redeems us. He buys us back. You know, there was modern-day illustrations of this over in the Middle East with ISIS when they would kidnap these Christian girls. And I read one story where a Christian individually, an individual actually posed as an ISIS guy, and he actually bought back one of his relatives 
from the ISIS. Cost him $30,000, $40,000 for this girl. But at least he was able to redeem her back and got her out of harm's way. So we have to remind ourselves, I think, that we are on the slave market of sin, and God, through his redemptive grace in Christ, purchased us. And when he, he buys us, beloved, he doesn't renege on it. You know, he doesn't have buyer's remorse. You know, he doesn't want to take it back after 30 days and get a refund. That's not the way God operates. When he buys us, he bids the price of his own blood. And it says, you know what? This was sold to my son, Jesus Christ. And there's no one to bid any higher than him. And so, therefore, we become his forever. Once in a while, I'll be flipping through the channels on TV, and I'll come across this channel where they auction cars. You ever seen that channel? It's amazing. I mean, they pull the car up, and, you know, it's all fixed up and whatever. And these people start bidding. And I remember one day I was watching, and it wasn't even that nice of a car. But somebody wanted this car. And I mean, it got up over a hundred grand for this car. And even the people that were, you know, commenting on it were going, boy, this is crazy because this car is definitely not worth a hundred grand. And it just kept on going back and forth. And I think they ended like at 175 or something. You know what? The guy got what he wanted. He bid the highest price. Don't think for a second that your salvation is just something that just happened. Just a fluke. No. It happened because, you know what? Christ bought you with his own blood. And when he buys us, guess what? We are his forever. Amen? For all eternity. We don't have to go to bed worrying. Oh, is he going to renege? Is he going to cancel the contract? No. The Bible says that we are secure in Christ. As a matter of fact, it tells us that we have an inheritance in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. It says, It was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed, there's that word, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. Well, how were we redeemed then, Peter? But with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That's what makes our salvation so so secure, is that Christ was the perfect lamb of God. And we know that he accomplished all that he needed to accomplish on that cross is because what? When he was buried and on the third day, what happened? He rose from the dead. That was like kind of God cashing the check, saying, yep, this is good. This is good. Well, the next kind of grace here under saving grace is efficacious, big word, efficacious grace. This is God's final expression of sovereign grace, and it emphasizes the, the, uh, in verses 11 to 14 here, the work of the Holy Spirit. It, it really applies the salvation that was planned by God the Father that was achieved by God the Son. It takes those two things and it says, okay, now I'm going to apply it to someone, to an individual. In other words, it affects our lives. The idea here is actually different from what it tells us in verse 4, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us. 
See, in verse 11 it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to him, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And here the choice is made by the Holy Spirit. It follows predestination, and it means that the Holy Spirit now makes God's choice effective in individual cases by choosing those individuals and leading them to faith. See, this should give us hope when we're, as Christians, when we go out into this lost and dying world, right, and they're kind of confrontational about our faith. They don't want to hear the gospel, you know what? They're not rejecting you when they reject the gospel of Christ. They're rejecting God. So we should be able to go all out of these four doors and, and boldly proclaim the gospel, knowing that, you know what? God has chosen some people still out there that aren't saved. And the reason I know that is true is because I believe the moment that last person of God's choosing gets saved here on earth, guess what? We're out of here. We're gone. And that time hasn't come yet. And so the choice here of the Holy Spirit makes this efficacious grace, this third member of the Trinity. Um, In John chapter 11, verse 39, it says, When Jesus got to Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had been dead for four days and that he was already rotting. And it says this, By this time there was a bad odor, for he has been there four days. I mean, that is a graphic illustration of the state of our moral and spiritual decay because of sin. That's what that was meant to be. There was no hope that anything could be done for Lazarus in that condition. That describes the unbeliever. That describes someone who has not yet bowed their knee to Christ. But praise God, Matthew 19, 26 says this, with God All things are possible. But with God, all things are possible. And so when Jesus got there, he understood the circumstances. He was God. He knew Lazarus had been dead that long. And when he prayed, Jesus called out, Lazarus, come out. And the call of Jesus brought that dead man who had been dead for several days back to life. That is a perfect illustration of God saving us. That we were dead. We were in our trespasses without hope. And yet when the call of God's grace came upon our lives and opened our eyes and transformed us, we were saved. See, that's what the Holy Spirit does today. He works through the preaching of the word of God to call those to faith whom God has elected to salvation and for whom Jesus Christ specifically died. Some people say, well, don't you believe Jesus died for everybody's sins? No. In this way, if Jesus had died for everybody's sins, if he paid the payment for everybody in the whole world, would anybody be in hell? How could they be? At what point would it be okay for them to enter hell if their sins have already been paid for? It'd be like going to a restaurant and... Me saying to everybody, hey, you know what? Whatever you order tonight, it's all on me. Go ahead, have fun. And then you go to leave after I paid the bill, and the waiter comes and says, oh, here's your check, sir. You're going to go, hey, wait a minute. Wasn't that paid already? 
See, the way this works in God's program and in God's mind is that before time even began, God knew that the human race was in its entirety on its way to hell. And God, in his own sovereign will, in his own sovereign way, said, you know what? I don't want all those people to go to hell. And because of that, I'm going to choose some to be touched by my grace and have their sins paid for by my son, my son on Calvary. And as a result of that, they will enjoy eternity with me forever in heaven. And once again, you can look at that in a positive way and say, wow, thank God he chose me. Or you can look at it in a way that questions God's authority and his character and says, but how dare you let those other people go to hell? And you have to stop and say, well, wait a minute. We were all going to hell. And God in his sovereignty chose some to be saved. It should cause us to be thankful to the God of grace for our salvation. Apart from those three actions, the act of God electing, the work of Christ in dying, the power of the Holy Spirit in calling, there would be no hope for anyone. None. No one could be saved. But because of what God has done on our behalf, the most depraved, the most blasphemous rebels can be turned in their tracks from his or her folly to salvation. They can be transformed. And that's why I say never, ever give up hope praying for someone. You don't know how God's going to work. Well, you don't know that person. God does. God does. I'm sure if we went around the room and said, hey, you know, before you got saved, uh, would, 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 would your friends say, oh, that person's going to be in church one day based on what they knew about you in high school or college? Most of us would probably say, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but you know what? Some of you maybe had a, a rougher time getting through the weeds than others. And so therefore, what? The, the, the glory goes more to God. Because you're like, wow, you really got saved? What did you get saved out of? Oh, I was involved in this, and I was involved in that. And, and then, boy, I came face to face with the God of truth. And it convicted my heart, and I knew that I needed a Savior. See, that's the kind of salvation that comes from a gracious God. Well, the next thing here is abounding grace. Abounding grace. In Romans 5, Paul wrote of God's abounding grace. Romans 5, verses 20 to 21, it says, The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, what? Grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That text was the favorite text of Paul Bunyan who wrote the, uh, the book Pilgrim's Progress. And he really told his own story. And the main theme of that book is grace is abounding to the chief of sinners. Grace abounding to the chief of sinners. The title is taken from verse 20, where it says, Where sin is abound, grace abounded all the more. And then Paul calls himself the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy, verse 15. 
But a little bit about Paul Bunyan. He was born in 1628 to poor parents. His father was a traveling tinker, a mender of pots and pans. And Bunyan practiced his trade for a time so that he would become known as the Tinker of Bedford. He had little education. In his youth, he was just uh, not good. In, in, in time, he became troubled by an acute sense of all the sins that he had committed. He wrote of himself that in those days it seemed as if the sun that was shining in the heavens begrudged him its light and as if the very stones in the streets and the tiles on the houses had turned against him. That's how he felt. He felt that he was abhorred by them and was not fit to live among them or benefit from them because he had sinned against the Savior. God gave Bunyan, saved Bunyan, and gave him great peace. And the title of his book in his testimony uh, You can discover that. But he discovered that no matter how great his sin was, the grace of God proved greater still. See, this is God's abounding grace. And then, quickly, God's persevering grace. Persevering grace. It's it's the fact that God's grace isn't something that just gives up on you. It perseveres. God will persevere with those whom he has called to faith in Christ And the Bible says that none will be lost because he perseveres with them. But don't forget, there's also the other side of that. We persevere as well by resisting and overcoming the world, the Bible calls it. To be ready when Christ comes back in his glorious return. You know, God never begins a work that he does not graciously bring to full completion. He never does. And so when you stop and you think about our own salvation, we are in the midst of being saved right now. Yes, we were saved before time began by God's choosing. We came to a point in life where we acknowledge Christ as our Savior, and then we enter into the phase of sanctification, which means, you know what, we're being saved every day. And then ultimately that one day when Christ returns and we'll be ushered into his presence, that we will ultimately be glorified. We will be ultimately saved from all we see around us today. It it reminds me of of passages like Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 where Paul writes, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Or 2 John Or, I mean, John 10, verses 27 to 30. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one, Jesus wrote. And then the third verse is one we've been through in Romans 8. Verse 35 to 39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, listen to us, 
that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor the present nor the future nor any powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Well, what does this mean? What does this mean to us? It means basically that we need to grow in our grace. We need to understand grace more. There's a couple of things to leave you with. First of all, we need to be settled in the great grace doctrines. There's several ways we can fail to be settled in grace. We can allow something other than Jesus Christ to be the center of our lives. That doesn't work. We can forget how gracious God has been and therefore become maybe harsh or critical or cruel with others. We can substitute the mere form of Christianity for the gospel. See, we need to become aware of the nature of God's grace more now than ever. The way God saved us. We need to be fall in love over and over again with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And never forget that it is by grace and grace alone that we have been brought out of death and darkness into his marvelous light. Secondly, we need to grow in the knowledge of God's grace. Not just grace doctrines, but the knowledge of God's grace. It's not a static thing. It's not like you just go to school and you learn about God's grace and that's it. It's a living thing. We need to continually grow in the knowledge of grace. That's why 2 Peter 3.18, Peter wrote, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do you do that? You study the Word of God. You meditate upon its teachings. Thirdly, we need to exercise the gift of serving others that, has, that God has given to each of us. See, if we're sitting here today and we're believers in Jesus Christ, God has given each of us at least one gift that he calls us to exercise in serving brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. We don't think very often of the the gifts that God gives us when we think of the grace of God. But a couple of passages come to mind. 1 Peter 4.10, Peter wrote this to each Christian that you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Or Ephesians 4, 7, when he was writing to the church at Ephesus, he says, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has appointed it. Therefore, when we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, we have to make sure that we realize that each Christian has a gracious gift from God that they're called to employ to serve others. And then the last thing here is we need a continuing supply of grace in order to complete the work that God assigns to us. You know, the Bible says that you can go out there and you can work in the spirit or you can work in the flesh. You can actually do ministry in the flesh. And it's all for naught. See, Paul was conscientious of having received grace to carry out his calling as an apostle. But he also knew that he needed it constantly. It wasn't just good enough that, okay, God saved me and now I'm just going to coast. No, every day we get ourselves out of our beds, we need the grace of God, brothers and sisters. We need to be willing to trust him to work through us to do his work on his behalf. And the only way you can do that is if you have a continual supply of grace that he offers us. 
to do the work that God has assigned to us. So God's glorious, amazing grace, it's a wonderful thing. And it was, if it wasn't for Christ, if it wasn't for Calvary, guess what? We would not be here. We would not be secure in our salvation. Father, we thank you for your work. We thank you for your gracious words to us this morning. We thank you, Lord, that your grace is abounding, that it is saving, that it is redemptive. Lord, we thank you for the work of Christ on Calvary and how it secured our salvation. Lord, I pray for any here this morning who has yet to put their faith, their trust in you. And Lord, we pray that you would just supernaturally draw them to yourself as only you can. God, we can't save each other. Only you can. And so we implore you, we ask you, we beg you this morning to work in those individuals' hearts. Show them their need of a Savior. Show them their sinfulness. Show them their imperfections and their faults. Bring them to the end of themselves where they can cry out to you, Lord, save me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer that God will hear and answer when it's prayed from a broken heart, when it's prayed from a repentant heart. And as believers, Lord, as we go out into this world this week, I pray that we would remember that God's grace is on our side, that, that he has a message of grace for us to give to a lost and dying world, and that we would live a life that's filled with God's grace and representative of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you. We pray you bless our time of fellowship and the food afterwards. We, we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.